Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Developmentor Podcast, your source for interviews and content on careers in technology. I'm your host, Grant Ingersoll. Thank you all for taking the time out of your day to listen and join us. If you're just joining us for the first time, we have three goals. We want to showcase interesting people in tech across a variety of roles. We want to highlight the different paths people take in their careers. And most importantly, we want to help you find your path. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor. Today's guest is an electrical engineering major from the University of Arizona who went on to earn a master's in that field. After completing school, he moved into the working world as an analytics programmer and then as an embedded systems engineer. He also just happens to be the brother of one of our earlier guests, Kavita Ganesan, in episode 18. Please welcome to the show, Arun Ganesan. Arun, great to have you here. Thank you, Grant. Thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, and thanks so much for taking the time out of your day. I know everyone's busy, but why don't we start off by having you do a quick intro to yourself. I gave some of the highlights there, but I'd really love to hear how you got into tech and kind of the journey so far for you. So I came to the States in 2006 to pursue my bachelor's degree. After completion, uh, I moved on to my master's degree and went to Cal State Long Beach in California. After that, I graduated and my first job was at Ford. I was the analytical programmer uh, for the hybrid transmission group. I did a lot of MATLAB programming, and I got that job because of my MATLAB exposure when I was working my master's degree. We did a lot of durability analysis throughout that. From there, I moved on to being the systems engineer, which I carried forward all my analysis done previously. Let me go back there a little bit. I mean, you moved to the States 2006, if I heard you correctly. Why electrical engineering? Like, how did you decide on that as a major? I mean, it's really interesting, right? Because a lot of the early programmers back in the 70s were actually electrical engineers. I'm, I'm curious as to why that degree? So when I was small, I would always tinker around with electronics and you know, take things apart, put them back until I got yelled at for doing things like that. That was my interest. You know, when I was 17, my dad and I had a talk and he said, why not electrical engineering since I like doing these things, which made sense to me. So that's how I got into electrical engineering throughout my education. Fill our guessing, because I think you're the first person I've had on the show who has an electrical engineering degree. Like, what are you covering as topics as part of electrical engineering? I mean, obviously the name has some implications there. Is it some programming? Is it hardware? Like, what all goes into getting a, a double E major, as it's often shortened to? Primarily, of course, it's going to be all hardware, all circuit analysis, image processing, signal processing. There will be some programming as part as a tool to accomplish what you want to accomplish as an electrical engineer. For me, it just so happened that I needed to use MATLAB for my thesis, and it just moved on from there. You're actually like designing logic boards and things like that. Does that include all the way up to like designing like CPUs and that kind of hardware? Or is it more like, you know, I don't know, what's some example of some things that you might design as an electrical engineer? It's actually both. You know, there are different tracks. If you want to go into processor design, that would be more computer architecture. If you want to be more circuit, then it would be digital analog design. Ah, gotcha. You know, another thing that I think often comes up in this space of careers is this choice of going on and doing a master's. So you got your four-year degree at uh, University of Arizona. What inspired you to go get a master's? Because that's, you know, yet another two years of, of your life in school. When you're earning a bachelor's degree, it's more of a general knowledge kind of thing. And I wanted to specialize more and to make myself more marketable to get a good job. So that's primarily why I did my master's. 
So from there, you launched into this analytics programming, which doesn't exactly sound like electrical engineering. I mean, if I understand you correctly, you did this thesis. And as part of your thesis, you were doing a lot of MATLAB programming. Is that the connection? And what was that like of coming out of from master's? And then all of a sudden, now you're you're thrown into being a programmer. It was a rather big change because I didn't really use much of what I learned as an electrical engineer. Of course, you need to know some basics. Uh, most of it was programming and understanding the system you're working on. Hybrid vehicles for me. I imagine, though, like the concepts of the hardware actually still translate a fair bit. You know, you, if you're talking logic boards, circuit boards, you know, you're still dealing with if-else conditions and, and those kinds of things, right? And so I imagine, you know, for somebody who's on the technical side of hardware, like the leap to software is probably not that foreign of a concept, right? Right. But I wasn't actually working with circuit boards. I was working on the transmission side of things, which is how the power split transmission works or how the hybrid transmission works. And You're getting data off of the transmission systems and running that through analysis. So, so what does that look like as an analytics programmer at a bit, bit deeper level? So for me, my first project was durability analysis. You know, given a certain part moving the transmission, how can you quantify that? to a lifetime of the transmission. So it's like some statistical analysis? It was a lot of statistical analysis. Uh, we also had to know some mechanical engineering terms and topics. Right. So, so I imagine then there's a lot of learning on the job here. Because, I mean, I, again, I would assume as an EE major, you're doing some coverage of stats, but you're not like a stats major. Is that fair? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So then you've got a, a fair bit of on-the-job training involved, I would imagine reading papers, lots of questions. I'm curious then, so you, you do analytics for a bit. How do you then make that leap to embedded? Because that's a whole different way of programming. You're kind of going from that MATLAB or SAS or whatever other stats program you're using, maybe some R, and then now you're in the embedded world. How did you make that leap? So it all started with an idea that I had. You know, I saw some things at work and I thought, hey, why not consolidate some of these tools into one package. It was just an idea. I brought it up to my boss back then and he said, oh, great idea, let's, let's start working on it. I started with C-sharp because all our computers are Windows, so I thought I could write an application in Windows. Through trial and error, I tried. It actually grew pretty well. The tool that I wrote is now used by Ford globally and I immediately fell in love with it. I loved CPU architecture. Initially, when I was working on it, it was more on the communication protocol, how you get data out of the vehicle. And as I worked, more on it, I had to ask more questions. How does it work? What am I getting? What am I asking the car for? And then I realized that, hey, uh, you know, I always liked computer architecture throughout school. It was something that came to me. And using that and seeing what I did at work, I just moved on to a better systems. So actually, define that a little bit more for our listeners. I mean, what exactly does an embedded system entail? So it's a system that performs a specific task that interfaces with other systems or sensors or controls. Everywhere you look, is you'll find an embedded system in your watch, in your phone, the monitor. A system with a computer that performs a specific task is how I would usually describe an embedded system as. So taking the watch example, is this something that actually gets, you know, quote unquote, printed onto the hardware? And you have to forgive my naivete here. I've never done much on the hardware system. Or is it the system itself has a CPU on it? So it's just running and booting a program out of storage in that system? Or is it 
like you're actually printing this onto hardware as I think some of these systems can do? The system itself will require a chip for controls because you're controlling input and output. You're controlling how you're getting data, how you're processing it, or how, how you're handling data, any sort of data. If you find a bug in your program, it's not like you have to go change the hardware. You just upload a new program, essentially like a firmware update or something along those lines. The code works with the hardware. So you write your code to match the hardware. What kind of programming language are you using for that? You said C-sharp. Are cars running C-sharp? No, no, no. C-sharp was just for the application on Windows, but the actual code that goes in the transmission or on the chip, we use C. Ah, okay. So this is like you're writing pretty low-level code at this point then, right? And, and then I imagine then, not to go into too much details around what you specifically use, but you have libraries and, and that that give you functions related to the specific system you're embedding with. And so your job is to call and interface with those? Correct. For the average programmer out there who's perhaps, you know, building websites, et cetera, how does this differ from that kind of programming? Like what's special about embedded systems or what makes it particularly challenging? So the embedded systems, you have to be well aware of the architecture you're writing it on. You need to know your hardware. If you're writing a basic application and you don't really bother about, oh, I'm writing it on a Mac system or Intel chip, it doesn't matter. So the hardware of it is abstracted if you're writing applications. On the embedded side, you have to worry about all these things. You need to worry about controls, memory management, timing signals it's a lot lower level a lot of things to keep track of you know just to drill in on that a little bit more there might be specific inputs and outputs that you're dealing with coming off of the transmission or the car or the watch or whatever and and you just know that you're always going to get those data points then i'm, I'm assuming there's a real-time component to this too right like you have to re react to things in real time and you, if I'm understanding, you only have a certain amount of memory, you probably only have a certain amount of time to process things as well. Right. How did you train yourself for that? Because that's a very different way of debugging, I imagine. It's a very different way of learning the craft, right? Right. That's a good question. I don't know how I trained myself for it. I mean, I dove right into it and I picked it up from my mentors at work. Certain things should react within X amount of time and you got to Keep an eye out for that. It sounds like just learning what the hardware can do. And then imagine because you've done the durability analysis stuff, you have a feel for this hardware anyways. Is that fair to say? To a certain extent, yes. Well, and then of course your EE background, I would imagine too. You because you have this mechanical background and this EE background, it uh, you know you like to tinker with hardware. It sounds like it's somewhat of a natural fit as, as well. I imagine. Walk me through a little bit of the day to day. Obviously, I don't want you know details about oh hey I'm working on this X new transmission, but I'm I'm just kind of curious of like what does the day to day look like? Are you using simulators for the hardware? Do you go out and field test this stuff? How does all of that work? So day to day, it really varies. There are times when we have issues at work, we have to jump into that. There are days where we develop, there are days where we test. So on a day where we test, uh, you know, we get the software ready, we build the software, and there are different ways we test. One, we test it, it's called the hardware in loop, where we test our controls on hardware, where we simulate the vehicle through models. So we flash the software onto our actual control board, but we simulate the inputs and outputs in models. Uh, so like in the case of a transmission, you're effectively, you know, shifting up or down, putting in reverse, kind of all the, you know, revving the engine, all of those kinds of things. Yeah. So you, you, you have an actual hardware thing, but you're, you're simulating the inputs and outputs to it. You simulate the interface. 
another way we test is also in the vehicle. Once we have proven that it runs in the hill, hardware and loop, uh, we take it up to the vehicle and we test it. What's an example of something that you find at that level that you wouldn't find at the simulated level or in your, te- in your earlier testing? Uh, that times we have found that the vehicle will not start. And then there's this whole panic of wondering why the car is not starting. And it's on the dyno. We have limited time on the dyno. And we need to fix it now. Dyno being the actual physical car in this case, right? Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So you have to then fix it right there in the moment. Yeah, we have to fix it right there. Go back to the developers or myself. I have to go back to my desk and figure out why. What did I do that's causing the car not to start? Ah, gotcha. Uh, So I imagine then you're hooking up and gathering a lot of diagnostics right off the car as you're doing it. And then you take that back to your workstation, basically. And if it's not my feature, if it's not the code that I wrote, then I have to find the engineer who wrote it and have a bunch of meetings and figure things out. So at the end of the day, this stuff ships, you know, the car starts, right? You know, it's now out in the field. What is the long-term maintenance of this kind of software look like? There's an expense to updating hardware in the field with new firmware, with new software, right? So the way we work, software is, we go through different milestones. And every milestone, we have certain things that we need to fix. And once it comes up to, I guess you could say production, software is frozen. There shouldn't be any bugs. There shouldn't be any changes. And very rarely do we send out changes if need be. By the time the car comes out, software is fixed. Do you do things like formal verification of the software because it is such an important aspect? Do you do things like formal verification? We do. That, that's an integral part of uh, our development process. Explain that a little bit for our guests, you know, who are listeners who maybe haven't come across formal verification methods, because I think that's a particular niche of software that most of us uh, who are software engineers don't do. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, through my testing phase, we write the code, we review the code, and then we test it, you know, through multiple modalities. We have the hill, we have the sill, software in loop, hardware in loop. We take it out to the vehicle in the dyno. Uh, we take it out to the vehicle on the test track, and we prove it out that way. So then some of the, perhaps in computer science, there's, there's some notion of formal verification where you're actually proving out the logic and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, this is more like formal methods. I'm probably getting uh, too far out over my own experience here, but it, remembering back to college, you can do like formal proofs around given the inputs and outputs. I'm just was kind of curious as to what level of depth you do that. We do come up with boundary conditions. So if we have a new feature we want to add, requirements, we include the boundary conditions. And from there, we create our own test plan. I would imagine in your job then, you spend a lot of time, obviously, with the testers, but also the designers of, say, the transmission in this case or whatever other parts you're working on. So you've, you're probably working a lot with hardware engineers as well as testers and other software engineers. Yep. We do a lot of interfacing. I'm kind of curious, like how long does it take to typically go through shipping something like this? Okay, so from the inception of the vehicle to production would be three, four years. So this is a long game that you're playing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it and, and might even take a while for you even to get that feedback, right? 
Yep. So th- this is where like the simulations all come in. Are you writing the simulating software too, or is that just kind of a given by somebody else in the equation? That's given to us by suppliers. Very cool. I mean, I, I think I've met a handful of embedded systems engineers in my career, but I've never done that work. So it's fascinating to me because the conditions are so much different, especially when you put real hardware out into the field. It's a little unnerving at, at times. You don't have that kind of quick update loop. So you got to get it right. Yeah, even within the embedded world, there's different levels. There's one on the application layer where you write the C code, and then you can move further down to the BART level where the C code actually interfaces with the hardware. Ah, so that's almost like assembly type interfaces, right? Yeah, and that, that gets really interesting down at that low level. Yeah, and how so? Like, explain that a little bit more. Is it just way more cryptic? What goes in at that layer? At that layer, I would say things get wild. You know, debugging is not as simple. Now you're working with the hardware and it's no more C code, it's hex, it's binaries. And you have to figure out, okay, what's causing the hardware to reset or the CPU to reset. And then we have to look at diagnostics, which is something sometimes a bit cryptic. And we'd need to refer back to the user manual or the data sheet to interpret the data. Memory management, sometimes you run out of memory and you wonder why, you know, my code is small. Why are we running out of memory? I'm kind of curious, like how much memory do you typically deal with in these systems? Depends on the system. I would say somewhere between one to three megabytes. So you got to write some pretty lean code, right, Arun? I mean, you're going over every line with a fine-tooth comb in terms of shaving off a byte here, shaving off a byte there, I imagine. Very lean. You got to be very careful with the variables. If it's an integer, make sure it's an integer. If it's a short, make sure it's a short. You'll be very careful with what you use. That's a certain craft there, right? Because I think most of us, you know, especially if you're like a Java programmer or higher order language, you kind of can be a little bit lazy, if you will, when it comes to memory, because, you know, the garbage collection is so good. But you're dealing all the way with allocating, deallocating memory all the time, then I imagine. That's just one thing with basic applications, you take it for granted, right? You don't really care about size. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> Size matters here, for sure. I'm curious, you know, Arun, shifting gears, you know, what have been some of the key inflection points? You know, what what drove you to make that change from it? Well, you, you talked a little bit about, hey, you saw this opportunity, but was there something else underneath that in terms of really driving that career change? It was my interest and in how I like to solve problems. You know, when I was doing my master's, I started out with digital design and analog design. And I liked analog design better than digital because the problems are always different. It was never the same set of problems and you're never working in the same framework. And writing basic application to embedded applications analogous to that digital versus analog, it's always a new problem. Something new comes up, new architecture. You're always learning. That was very interesting to me. Explain that a little bit more, the difference between analog design and digital design. I mean, I think, you know, I probably can conjure up some examples, but I'd be curious just to have you explain that a little bit more to our listeners. Why would one like one versus the other? Kind of what are the trade-offs between the two? Digital design, it's designing your, the logic within a CPU, so to say, right? You're always working on the same framework, the same set of rules apply. You shrink it a little bit, you design it or you add more logic to it. On the analog design, it's more real-world based. So you're using circuits to solve real-world problems. For example, sensors. You have to make a sensor work within different parameters. So it's never the same thing. It's always different. 
So like, for instance, a sensor in this case might be something as simple as like a, a thermometer or camera or something along those lines, like where it's actually taking in physical input and turning that into a, an analog signal, which you then have to, I'm assuming, digitize, right? It is digitized and it's based on your application. If you need a sensor for really low temperatures, that's going to be a bit different from your regular household sensor. You know, is this you doing things like fast Fourier transforms and signal processing type stuff? Or is that a given for you in these systems that the conversion to digital is done for you? Or do you write that yourself? Uh, that is done for us. So somebody then who is kind of trying to decide between these two, like where would their affinities lie if they wanted to do one versus the other? I think it would come down to your personal preference. Some people really like digital design. Some people like analog. Some people like you know application programming. Some would prefer better programming. Whether you like that variability of the analog, you know, where you've got all kinds of different systems and they're going to have different inputs just based off of different conditions, versus the digital, as I understand it, is you know you're primarily going to be within a very similar architecture most of the time. Is that right? That's right. Interesting. I mean, shifting gears a little bit, as you kind of reflect back now on having done this for years, I love this question of what's the best thing about the role and what's the most challenging thing about the role of being a, an embedded systems engineer? Most challenging part, I would say, is the knowledge of the architecture, because there's a lot, a lot that you need to know. To be a master, I think it will take about 20 years or so. At least that, that's how I see it. And is that because you're just constantly, there's, there's always new hardware because, you know, every iteration of the car, you, you know, you're learning how to make a transmission better. You're learning how to make the engine better. You're driving under different conditions, that kind of stuff. It ties on back to the uh, CPU we use. That's a lot, a lot to know about the CPU and how it works. If you look at the data sheet, it's over a thousand pages long. So very detailed work goes into this. You've got to be pretty detail-oriented, then I imagine, to be able to turn that into code, right? You have to be very detail-oriented, and you kind of need to know a high-level view as well. So if that's the most challenging, what's the, what's the best part? Best part is when you solve a problem. I don't know how to explain the feeling, but when you solve a real problem, it's just satisfying. So it's that kind of the debugging and testing out the ideas, and then finally having that aha moment that, like, oh, I see how to make this work. It was this line of code that caused that problem and, and kind of bringing that all together. You'd feel the same when you solve a problem in writing a basic application, but it's a bit different when it comes to embedded systems because you're working on the hardware and you solve the problem within the interface, software and hardware. It's a bit different. I think many of us who are web application developers or that kind, it's always so abstract, but you've got this connection to the real world, if you will. You actually then see your product ship. Right, you can go drive the thing that you wrote on, or at least contributed to. So, imagine that's got to be a pretty good feeling too. It's a proud moment. How do you see this role changing as you look forward? Right, you know, so you're a few years in. You know, what's somebody likely to be doing in this role in five years? Is it just you know bigger, faster, better, more efficient? Is it like the? Do you think the tools are going to radically change? Architecture will change. Architecture and CPU will change. You'll have different problems, different vehicles. You won't be doing really the same thing. Yeah. I mean, do you imagine like the hardware gets smaller, more dense? Do you, do you imagine like, you know, starting to bring in more real-time analytics type systems in? Or are you doing that already? I imagine some of the programming is you're actually making decisions about 
how to change the performance of the system based off the data coming off, right? Yeah, technology will evolve. It will be more real-time. There'll be more data to process. There'll be new types of data to process. Who knows, maybe even AI be included in in these vehicles. Yeah, I imagine that. I mean, obviously they're doing, you know, quote unquote AI at the higher levels of the vehicles, you know, like your voice systems and all that. But it's I, it's pretty interesting to think about it at such a low level as as a transmission. But I, I won't I won't ask you to go there because I'm sure you're you're starting to encroach on sensitive pieces. But I would imagine that's a got to be a part of any hardware going forward. I'm curious, you, you know, Arun, you, you talked a little bit about mentors earlier. Uh, this show is called Developmentor. It has it right in the name. Reflect for a moment or two on what mentoring has meant to you. You know, what are some of the key lessons you've learned about how to engage at work, if you will, from your mentors? Mentoring is pretty important to me. It gave me a starting point. When I dove right into this, I didn't know where to start, what to look at. And having that mentor, at least for me, was very important gave me a starting point. He told me what to look at. And one question leads to another and you grow that way. Yeah. And how did you find your mentor? Was, it, was this just your boss? Was it somebody else in the department? I'm kind of curious, how did you establish that mentoring relationship? He was actually a coworker, a technical specialist with a sister group of ours. And he liked to teach. And he always said, hey, if you need me to mentor, that's, that's fine. Ah, uh, cool. So it's just like you happened to be on a project with him or you met him in the lunchroom or that kind of stuff and you struck up a conversation. I met him on my first project and things just grew that way. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, it's it's such a tricky thing to figure out at work sometimes where obviously your boss should be some level of a mentor, but oftentimes the best mentors are exactly like what you're talking about. They come from working on a project together and it grows from there. So that's fantastic to hear. I'm curious then putting your mentoring hat on as we kind of wrap up here, you know, what's your best advice? What do you wish, I don't know, 18 year old Arun knew about getting into your career and doing your best work? I would say dig around, tinker with things, look into what you like, what, what you're best at. Even if it's a small sign, don't avoid it. Look into it. And, and I would imagine for somebody who wants to get into systems here, like, you know, these days you could start with uh, like a Raspberry Pi or I forget, what are the little circuit boards you can get now where you can kind of program them yourselves? You can get them from Texas Instruments. If somebody wants to try this out, right, like they can just start with things like Raspberry Pis and, and other bunch of these manufacturers where you can buy like these $10 chips and things like that, right? Yeah, you can buy the demo boards. And I totally encourage that. You can take free classes on Coursera, edX, and those are very good classes and good place to start. Uh, interesting. And then it sounds like, you know, learning C is going to be really helpful as well, right? It's not difficult. Just got to start somewhere. That's fantastic. I mean, and I think that tinkering mindset is so important in, in any career, but sounds like especially here, if you've got a love for hardware and kind of that hardware software interface, it sounds like, you know, being an embedded systems engineer is a pretty fascinating place to work. So, hey, Arun, so great to have you on the show. Last question, you know, where can our listeners uh, learn more about this? Perhaps some pointers. You mentioned some Coursera. How can they find you? How could they find more information about being an embedded systems engineer? They can find me on LinkedIn. They can find a lot more information about embedded systems. I take classes on embedded systems on Coursera, edX. They are free classes. You can buy hardware from Texas Instruments. It's all out there. You can Google classes and hardware. That's awesome. And, and for our listeners, we'll be sure to link those up in the show notes. 
Arun, thank you so much for giving us this insight into embedded systems engineering. I know it's one of those areas for myself where I'm like, I always kind of want to do it, but I'm never quite sure how to get started. I've bought some of the boards and then I always kind of get stuck. So it's, it's really cool to hear kind of your perspective on it. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, as always, to our listeners for taking the time to listen. If you like the show, we'd love for you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcast app is. You can also visit us at developmentor.com to hear older episodes as well as find other content on careers in technology. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. If you have any feedback on this episode or any episode, or you'd like to be a guest, drop us an email at podcasts at developmentor.com. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move that one step closer to finding your path.